Hakai Magazine explores science, society, and the environment from a coastal perspective. Today's feature article is The Fight Over a Shitty Rock. A tiny, uninhabitable islet in the North Atlantic has become an unlikely battleground in the fight for fishing rights by Greg Noon. Read by me, Katrina Pine. After a week at sea, fishermen round Dremeno Head before dropping anchor in Killybegs Harbor, Ireland. Carefully, they unload their catch onto the quay, box after box of mackerel, haddock, monkfish, and squid, spindly tentacles and scaled bodies packed tightly under ice. These trawlermen have come back from the North Atlantic where conditions are treacherous. High waves and powerful gales range across those waters even in the summer months. Protection only comes with the return to Killybegs, sheltered as it is from the worst of the storms up its narrow bay. This geographic advantage has helped make Killybegs the largest fishing port in Ireland. Last year, its trawlermen landed almost 200,000 tons of fish, helping to feed a burgeoning national export market for seafood. A large part of this catch is found around 420 kilometers north in the Rockall Trough, a remote stretch of the Atlantic between Ireland, Scotland, and Iceland. Here, the fish gather in vast schools, especially near the region's namesake pinnacle. Rockle, a tiny uninhabited jet-black outcrop of granite crowned by a pointless splattering of guano. This unassuming speck on the map was thrust into the spotlight this past summer when the Scottish government accused Irish trawlermen of overfishing in its territorial waters, before announcing that its Coast Guard would board any Irish fishing boat venturing into a 19-kilometer zone around the islet of Rockle. Trawlermen from the town of Killybegs, who have been casting their nets in those waters since the late 1980s, were dumbfounded. They find it incredible, says Sean O'Donoghue, chief executive of the Killybegs Fishermen Association. The attitude, certainly among my members, has been, we are not going to take this. They can come and arrest us and we'll fight this all the way. For fishermen in Killybegs, where economic activity is concentrated overwhelmingly in the harbor, any exclusion from the water around Rockle could prove economically disastrous. O'Donoghue estimates that up to a third of the town's herring and blue whiting catch comes from the 19-kilometer area around the outcrop. What's more, he argues, Scotland has no right to prevent Irish fishermen from plying these waters. British claim of ownership over Rockle has never been legitimate, he says. We, as an industry and as an Irish government, have never recognized that. As Edinburgh and Dublin clash in distant boardrooms, Irish trawlermen continue to drop nets around Rockle, now under the watchful eye of Scottish enforcement vessels. For the moment, the outcrop status remains uncertain. But with Brexit threatening to cut off access to these waters to European Union trawlermen, Killybeg's fishing community is set to be the first casualty in a maritime legal dispute decades in the making. Rockle is at least 52 million years old, the battered remnant of an extinct volcano. As high as a four-story building and slightly wider than a city bus, the seamount only began appearing on navigational charts in 1606. Early descriptions portray a familiar, if unusual, sight for mariners crossing the Atlantic. Rockle is a solitary island, not unlike Soulstack, but higher and bigger and white from the same cause, wrote Captain William Coates of the Hudson Bay Company in 1745. 
That cause, namely the abundance of guano deposited by resting gannets and guillemots, along with Rockle's almost vertical cliffs, must have put off most sailors from landing, because it wasn't set foot upon until 1811, when Lieutenant Basil Hall of the HMS Endymion led a small crew in two longboats to its summit. After having mistaken the islet for a ship under sail, an expedition was mounted. As Hall later wrote, we had nothing better on our hands. The trip was a waking nightmare. First came the difficult ascent, complicated by a high swell and Rockle's slippery cliffs. One false step, Hall wrote, might have sent the explorer to investigate the secrets of the deep. By some miracle, the crew clambered up to the summit, only for a dense fog to descend. Frightened at losing their ship, Hall and his men hopped back onto their boats as fast as the rising swell would allow. After several hours rowing through dense mist, they made it back to the Endymion. The Royal Navy wouldn't return in force until 1955, this time with a helicopter, four marines, and a plaque declaring Rockle British territory to prevent it from being used as a base for the Soviet Union to spy on the United Kingdom's missile tests. The annexation briefly fixed the islet at the forefront of British cultural imagination. Many found the episode faintly ridiculous. Satirists Michael Flanders and Donald Swan captured the public's bemusement in a loving ditty. We sped across the planet to find this lump of granite, one rather startled Gannet. In fact, we found Rockle. Lord of the Flies author William Golding used the islet as a convenient, if unlikely, metaphor for the human condition. In his 1956 novel Pincher Martin, Golding's protagonist is stranded after his ship is torpedoed, only to slowly realize that he is dead and Rockle is his purgatory. The United Kingdom's annexation also provoked a spree of visits from a cavalcade of nationalists and adventurers who considered the rock their personal ultima thule. In 1975, the Dublin rock climber Willie Dick almost drowned, attempting to plant the Irish tricolor on the summit, an act that grew out of the simmering outrage among Irish nationalists at Rockle's incorporation into Inverness Shire, Scotland, three years earlier. A decade later, British Special Air Service veteran Tom McLean sought to reaffirm British sovereignty over Rockle by becoming the first man to live on the rock. He spent 40 days huddled in a plywood box. McLean was followed by activists from Greenpeace in 1997, who re-Christianed Rockle the Republic of Waveland in protest of oil and gas exploration in its surrounding waters. A group of Belgian ham radio operators in 2011 who became so violently seasick during their trip to the island that they had to return to Scotland the next day. And Englishman Nick Hannock, who holds the world occupation record of 45 days for his stay on the islet. As the founder of the Rockle Club, membership of which is extended to anyone who has successfully landed on the islet, Hancock is probably the world's leading expert on its history and morphology. Hancock spent most of his stay sitting and sleeping inside an adapted water tank hauled up on the islet's flattest ledge. He remembers a windswept barren place that stank of dead fish. Legacies from past landings, he says, were easy to find. There's a couple of plaques left by the Royal Navy and one commemorating Tom McLean's stay, says Hancock. 
On the summit lies the remnants of a light beacon installed by British military engineers in 1972, which, from the sea, resembles a subterranean hatch, and a piece of half-carved graffiti on the side of the main ledge left by the Special Air Service veteran. He got as far as Tom Mc... Hancock worried about getting lonely on the rock and vowed to keep himself busy. Sometimes that meant making friends with passing birds, including two pigeons and a starling. For the most part, though, Hancock spent his time reading, learning the harmonica, and conducting a series of scientific experiments, including the successful confirmation of Rockwell's height, 0.85 meters lower than previously thought. Aside from the fierce storm that cut his expedition to just three days over the existing record, the memories that stick most in his mind are of sitting under crystal blue skies, watching gannets diving and minky whales surfacing around the rock, and you are the only person there. For fishermen like O'Donohue, however, Rockle is less important for its natural beauty than its capacity to block access to vital fishing grounds. Their concerns are shared by the Irish government, which has never recognized the United Kingdom's claim to Rockle. On the face of it, Dublin's position is in opposition to international maritime law, as defined by the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. This agreement, signed by the vast majority of the world's governments, lays out the rules for deciding a country's maritime territory, stating that rocks that cannot sustain human habitation or economic life of their own shall have no economic exclusive zone or continental shelf. However, it does permit the creation of territorial waters around said outcrop if a country stakes a valid claim to it. The Irish government, however, refuses to recognize the United Kingdom's title over Rockall. This means, in turn, that the waters around Rockall are not British territory at all, but just the far reaches of the United Kingdom's economic exclusive zone. Since both nations are currently members of the European Union, Irish trawlermen are entitled to fish in the United Kingdom's economic exclusive zone under the European Union's Common Fisheries Policy. In Dublin's eyes, therefore, Rockall should have as much bearing on fishing rights as an iceberg or a shipwreck. The United Kingdom, of course, believes otherwise. It considers Rockall and the water around it to be British territory and, therefore, exempt from the common fisheries policy. It has continuously reinforced this claim through symbolic acts, including fixing various plaques by the Royal Navy on the outcrop proclaiming British sovereignty over it and legally incorporating the islet into Inverness Shire in 1972. Though this may not seem like much, a symbolic act on a tiny, uninhabitable speck of land is very significant in terms of getting international ownership, explains Clive Simmons, a professor of maritime law at Trinity College Dublin. What is actually more unusual, Simmons says, is that though the United Kingdom maintains Rockall as its territory, it has given up using the islet to further its economic exclusive zone into the North Atlantic. Typically, a country's economic exclusive zone is calculated to extend 200 nautical miles from its claimed territory. In 1997, however, the United Kingdom unilaterally decided to pull back the starting point for this calculation from Rockall to St. Kilda, an archipelago around 180 kilometers off the Scottish mainland. Ironically, it is the last remnant of Britain's hold over Rockall that is proving to be the most troublesome. And with Brexit looming, this situation could deteriorate 
even further. The latest version of the political declaration on withdrawal seeks to preserve the status quo of fishing rights until a new agreement on access is reached between London and Brussels by July 2020. A deal the Scottish Fishermen's Federation has endorsed provided no further concessions are made in permitting its European Union rivals to fish in British waters. However, because the Federation's members consider Rockles Waters United Kingdom territory and therefore never subject to the common fisheries policy, access to the outcrop is likely to become an object of intense negotiation. The situation will become much simpler if Britain leaves the European Union without a deal. Since Rockle lies at the westernmost edge of the United Kingdom's economic exclusive zone, the British government would be within its rights to throw all Irish and all European Union fishermen out of these waters. The inverse is also true for British fishermen in European Union waters, says O'Donoghue. They're not going to accept that we can put them out. The Killybegs Association chief suspects the Scottish government's newfound belligerence is an attempt to whip up support for its own nationalist party against the Conservative Party in the country's fishing communities, a claim disputed by officials in Edinburgh. As the United Kingdom's withdrawal date nears, few can predict whether Brexit will lead to new opportunities for British trawlermen no longer bound by the common fisheries policy or clashes with their European counterparts over who can fish where as occurred last summer when French boats rammed their British counterparts in a row over scallop stocks in the Baie de la Seine. Other observers, however, are keen to see how the British claim to the islet might evolve under these pressures. The Japanese are particularly interested in Rockle, Simmons says. Japan, too, claims ownership of an isolated rocky outcrop hundreds of kilometers from shore. While the largest islet in the Okinotorishima Reef is no larger than a double bed, the Japanese government has spent an estimated 600 million US dollars literally shoring up its island status with concrete barriers and titanium netting. Unlike the United Kingdom, though, Japan continues to claim a 200 nautical mile economic exclusive zone around the formation, much to the displeasure of the Chinese, who of course cite the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea says Simmons. Any future horse trading over the territoriality of a granite outcrop in the North Atlantic could, therefore, set a valuable precedent in the ongoing tussle over an artificially sheltered atoll in the Western Pacific. The capacity for Rockle to create such mischief would have been unimaginable to its first visitors in 1811. To Hall and his crew, it was nothing but a curiosity that broke the endless monotony of the North Atlantic. The smallest point of a pencil could scarcely give it a place on any map, which should not exaggerate its proportion to the rest of the islands in that stormy ocean, he wrote. A moot point now, perhaps. Find more coastal news and stories from Hakai Magazine on our website at hakaimagazine.com or follow us on Twitter or Facebook. All of our feature stories are part of the Hakai Magazine Audio Edition podcast, which you can subscribe to through your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this story, please consider sharing it with your friends.